It's not biblical. God does not call us to separate ourselves from the world and live that way. It's just the opposite. He calls us to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations. Okay. He calls us to be out there preaching the gospel, living exemplary, holy, set apart lives for others to see. That's what he calls us to do. Hi, and welcome to One Little Candle, a place where genuine believers are encouraged, empowered, and inspired to be the light that God calls us to be by contending for the faith that God has entrusted once for all time to his people so that we may pass down undefiled the truth of God's infallible word to the next generation. And in case you're thinking that you can't make a difference in your own little corner of the world, Yes, you can, because all it takes is one little candle. I'm your host, Rebecca Bershwinger. Thanks for joining me for today's episode. One Little Candle is a member of the Christian Podcast Community. So visit christianpodcastcommunity.org for more doctrinally sound podcasts such as these. Andrew Rappaport's Rap Report is a podcast providing biblical interpretations and applications. It is a ministry of striving for eternity and part of the Christian podcast community. We provide a biblical view of cultural events, discuss how to apply God's word to the Christian life, address issues that concern the church, and we even take some time to offer a correct understanding of those commonly misinterpreted passages of scripture. You will hear from great guests like Justin Peters, Todd Friel, Jay Warren Wallace, and Gabe Hughes. Andrew has the Rap Report Daily, which is a two-minute Monday through Friday podcast, and then the longer Rap Report podcast for more content. Subscribe to both today by searching for Rap Report on any podcast app, spelled R-A-P-P Report, or click the podcast link at strivingforeternity.org. I think as parents, we assume that kids are going to just know the right way to do things. You have to train them by teaching them to do it over and over again until they actually get it. This is Yvette Hampton, host of the Schoolhouse Rocked podcast. Join us each week for a new episode as we offer encouragement and resources on biblical discipleship from popular speakers and authors, as well as parents just like you and me. Find out more at schoolhouserocked.com or listen anywhere you find your favorite podcast. That's christianpodcastcommunity.org. Hi, and thanks so much for joining me today. Um, If you're returning, I appreciate you coming back. And if this is your first time listening to One Little Candle, welcome. I'm so happy to have you. Uh, How is everyone doing? I hope you're all doing well, wherever you are in your life, wherever you're at in this world. I pray that you are walking close to the light. We really need to be right now (laughs) if we're not. But um, here I am, as promised. Working at finishing up the series, refuting the book Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution, written by actor Rain Wilson, who is better known for his role as Dwight Schrute on the hit television series, The Office. And for those of you that are joining me for the first time, or even maybe (laughs) that have been here, you might want to, if you want to go back and review anything, I would definitely encourage you to check out my previous episodes. Um, for the first four chapters of this book. But I'll give a quick review here. Um, 
This is a book where the author, Rain Wilson, presents the reader with an alternative, I guess you could say, to religion, using religion. His idea is to create a quote-unquote new religion. And so he shares a little bit of his life's story as far as his own spiritual journey goes. And he has written this book with a worldview that differs from that of a Christian, a true Christian, a true follower of Christ. First and foremost, um, he bases his religious views on the Baha'i religion. That is, from what I understand, an offshoot of Islam more than anything. And so (laughs) it's been very frustrating reading the book because, as I've said many times in my previous episodes, Rain Wilson gets it when he sees a lot of what's going on in this world and he calls it out, but yet he doesn't get it because he he recognizes the symptoms, but he's failing to recognize the root, which is really, really important. Unfortunately, actually, he is part of that root that is causing the ills in society. But anyway, yes, it's he follows the Baha'i religion, which as far as Jesus Christ goes, which Christianity is all about Jesus Christ. For him and other Baha'i followers, they follow a prophet called Baha'u'llah, but they do not believe that Jesus was anything more than a mere prophet, a teacher, that God does not have a son, that Jesus Christ didn't die on the cross and then rise again from the dead three days later. They believe in what's called progressive revelation, that in Jesus's day and time, Yes, he was the way to the Father, but then, you know, as time passes, well, that place and time is no longer pertinent, so Jesus is really no longer pertinent, I guess you could say, and other people have come along in the meantime, you know, in future times and ages, and they were, in fact, the way to the Father. So the way to the Father, talk about a mess already, right, keeps changing. Um, There's nothing consistent because the other so-called prophets that were the way to the Father, they differ in really, really important doctrinal um, matters. So, and he also takes from Buddhism, he takes from um, Native American spirituality, other false religions, and tries to apply it to, um, well, as legitimate ways to, to the Father, to our Creator. And what he thinks of the God that you and I serve, and I think he's especially referring to the God of the Old Testament, which is the God of the New Testament, which was Jesus, okay, because Jesus is eternal. He, he was there throughout the Old Testament and, and passing judgment on sinful man and sinful nations. But the author does not like this about God. He has dubbed the the God that you and I know and love and revere and worship. He's dubbed him as the notorious G-O-D. And he, in chapter four, he was quite disrespectful. And I addressed that in my last episode about this book. So he does not believe in a God that, that punishes sin, basically, which much of the world rejects, right? Um, there goes any and all accountability at that point. And that's what sinful man wants. They don't want to be accountable to a perfect, holy, righteous God. Okay. 
But my original intention was to cover chapters five through seven in this episode, but that ended up being quite long. And so I've broken it down into two parts. So this particular episode will be chapters five through six. And then the next episode is chapter seven. And then hopefully following that, I can do chapters eight through 10 all in one episode. Maybe, maybe not. (laughs) But we're getting there, right? But chapter five, which is titled The Sacred Pilgrims, he um, talks about their pilgrimage to, of all places, Israel. Because Israel, that is where the Baha'i headquarters are located. But they, they took a trip, he and his wife and their teenage son, to Israel to visit the shrine of the dead prophet Baha'u'llah. Now, right away, I'm thinking, wow, how sad you have to visit a shrine dedicated to someone who's dead. They're no longer alive. I thought, what a disadvantage there, right? Because here we are as Christ followers, Christ who is very much alive and well and ruling, and we who have God within us as well, we have the Holy Spirit, his spirit within us as believers. And so we don't have to not that I wouldn't love to go to Israel because, of course, I do, those of you who know me, but we don't have to to experience God, to be with him. We can talk to him any time of the day, 24-7. His throne room is open for all those who believe in his son, Jesus Christ. And we have his word, his infallible word, our Bible as well, where, where he speaks to us. So, um, you kind of got to feel sad, actually, that, that that's uh, what people do. They go and visit something dedicated to someone who was a mere mortal man and who is no longer alive. So, yes, he talked a little bit about this, this pilgrimage, this, this trip to Israel. And he said that, you know, it, it got him thinking about some things and a couple of things a couple of the things were the words sacred and holy. And so he takes some time to address those words. He talks about the dictionary definitions of, of sacred and holy. Um, I'll backtrack a little bit here. As he was talking about his visit to the shrine and, and he's reciting this obligatory prayer, well, he says this in the book, Baha'u'llah writes in one sentence of this brief prayer, I bear witness, O my God, that thou hast created me to know thee and to worship thee. And then Rain Wilson says, it's really that simple. It all boils down to that. Our ultimate purpose is to know and worship the creator. What that exactly means is a topic for another chapter or another book. Yet they worship Baha'u'llah. All right. You know, he talks about all the reverence and the, when, when they exit the shrine, they back away slowly with reverence and, you know, these man-made acts of reverence that the people do. But I just thought how ironic, this book is kind of full of irony, really, that um, Baha'u'llah said this, but yet <laughs> he has led thousands or millions of people away from the creator. He himself did not um, did not live out his ultimate purpose to know and worship the creator. So yeah, iron, ir- so ironic and sad, you could say. So he talks about the word sacred here in this chapter. 
Anne Hughes, Merriam-Webster, the dictionary definition, and it says that um, sacred is worthy of religious veneration, holy, or entitled to reverence and respect. And then he asks, well, what is holy? What is worthy of veneration and reverence these days, especially in our chaotic modern world? Excellent question. Excellent question. And then he goes on to talk about what Native American spirituality would say would be sacred or holy. And of course, I'm not going to give that any credence because Native American spirituality is in fact paganistic. They worship the creation, not the creator. Um, they worship Mother Earth. So really for, for Native American spirituality, the whole earth is God and it's holy. It's, it's sacred. That, that is what they would worship, you know, the sun, the moon, the stars, the mountains, things like that. But, you know, sacred, sacred and holy, those are words like love is <laughs> one word, but words that the world likes to throw around nowadays, right? You can find people will say many things are holy, including a, a Satan worshiper would, would declare Satan holy or <laughs> their services dedicated to the worship of him holy or, or sacred. But thinking biblically about these words, because we are to think biblically, but God, God tells us to be holy, right? We know that God is holy. As a matter of fact, as our Bible says, holy as, as the worship of God in heaven itself, holy, holy, holy. Okay. It's holy three times to state just how holy God is. And so holy biblically is it's an absolute um in an absolute sense it's used exclusively of god's um otherness his otherness or his uncreated and inaccessible majesty all right in relation to everything else everything else which really compared to him is unholy okay um but god is holy in that he's set apart from everything that's not holy but as his people, we must be holy as well because God has chosen us, those who are his. We are holy. We are set apart from sin. Um, we're to be separate from the world. In the world, yes, but not, not of it. And so holiness, you know, really there's an intermingling for me of holiness and sacredness. But in God's holiness, he, he's absolute perfection. He's unlike any other. He's completely absent of even a hint of sin. He's high above anyone and anything, and there's nothing that compares to him. So this holiness, God's holiness, it just pervades his entire being. It shapes all his attributes. Um, but that, that's holiness. You know, when we, whenever as Christians you hear the word holy, well, we think of God, right? We think of God, but as far as the word sacred goes, the dictionary says it's worthy of religious veneration or holy, entitled to reverence and respect of or relating to religion. Yes and no, I would have to say um, in this life, we consider family sacred, marriage sacred, right? That it's very important for us and it's kind of set apart from other things in the world. Many would say that sacred is something that's not secular. All right, that it's um, 
it's related to religion or to God. But, you know, again, looking at it as a believer, everything is connected to God, right? Everything that we do in our lives should be sacred. Our, our homes, raising our children, our marriages, you know, our families, our jobs, our activities, our hobbies, leisure activities. There shouldn't at all, because everything we do should glorify God in one way, shape, or form. So it's all sacred, really. There's not a difference there between sacred and secular because God should be first and foremost in all of these things as well. So that's the, that biblically is really um, sacredness and holiness. Yes, they're, they're, they're intertwined in many ways, the, the, the two words. But um, the rest of the world wouldn't view it that way. But, but he gave several examples, like I said, using Native American spirituality of what's, what's holy or, or what is sacred. He says here, in a grotesquely gross generalization that certainly does not apply to everyone on the right, to a conservative the Bible and Constitution might be considered sanctified, the traditional idea of family, as well as a church and the cross that's inside that church. An unborn baby's life is also sacred, perhaps. Perhaps? That kind of jumped out at me. I don't think he is uh, pro-life, so because <laughs> he's talked about women's so-called reproductive rights, which refers to the right to murder the child within your womb. And he's, so he says, Jesus and how he's portrayed, the American flag, the nobility of the military, these are belief systems and viewpoints that arose from several centuries of a distinctly American Christian point of view and hold true for much of the heartland of our nation. At least it once did, right? And then he gives what the more secular, urban, liberal uh, people who hold to those beliefs would consider holiness. And he says... So it would be something that maybe at its worst would be considered as superstitious. Yeah, I could see that. It says it's a term that's often viewed as being fabricated by either a mass religious imagination or the clergy of a specific religion that has some nefarious agenda or is some holdover from an ancient belief system. Uh, and he says sacredness at its best for the contemporary agnostic might be applied to the feeling of awe and wonder toward the universe that science has its own beauty and sacredness to be marveled and wondered at. What should be sanctified or honored should be the dignity of one's personal, racial, sexual, or gender identity. Universal human rights are sacred. See, the problem is we disagree with what's a human right. Um, it's not your human right to murder the child within your womb to have an abortion. It's not a human right to be married to the person of the same sex. It's not your human right to try to change your gender. So, you know, we, we have a problem right there too. So anyway, yeah, he, he looks at these words, talks about what's sacred, what's holy, what's profane. And honestly, you know, when we look at our culture now, there's not much that's sacred or, or holy at all. It is all profane. And boy, if we haven't learned that since October 7th, the extent of it, um, we are both deaf and blind, really. But then he presents the reader with some questions as to what makes up their circle of the sacred. He asks, what is holy to you personally? 
Maybe it's a religious tome, but it doesn't have to be a thing, a garden, but it doesn't need to be a place, a family dinner maybe. Where does sacredness live? In a poem or prayer, Sunday church services, any group of people united in service to make the world a better place, the night sky, a remote forest or beach or mountain. What should be sacred to all of humanity? Love, science, families, whatever their form. Humanity, that strange family of 8 billion people inhabiting the same ball of mud in outer space. Stars, places of worship, the atmosphere. What is most definitely not sacred, he asks, is it the profane, the mundane, or just any place or anything that is filled with the worst humanity has to offer, hate, baseness, or selfish behavior? The seven deadly sins like greed and lust and rage? Are the jabbering talking heads and outraged personalities of opinion news and social media worthy of any reverence? What have we lost by not having more sacredness in our lives? Our ability to pause and be still? Our sense of awe for the things we can't explain? A connection to our souls, to nature, to each other? Would we have deeper and more meaningful thoughts, conversations, and communities if we centered our attention around and toward the holy? Great questions. Um, Something to definitely think about. But again, when you're so differed on what or who is holy, kind of hard to have, you know, more, more community where we're united together in agreement, you know. But then he asks about, in reference to the cultural divide around the concept, what if it's all true? He said, what if it's all sacred? What if it's not an either or? Jesus taught love. That's most certainly sacred. Science teaches interconnectedness, which is, for all practical purposes, the same thing as love. Mm. Families, whatever their form, are sacred. No, not true. When we have a child with two daddies, or two moms, um, you know, same-sex unions. They are not sacred or holy. They go against God's created order, plain and simple. What is sacred, really, are are people to an extent, right? Because we're created in the image of God. That's sacred. That's sacred. Chapter 6 is titled Religion Schmeligion. And here in this chapter... He talks about some of the um, turmoil in the Middle East. And he talks about all the things you can find in Israel. He talks about the Western Wall in Jerusalem, the foundation stone which lies inside the Dome of the Rock, also known as the Al-Aqsa Mosque, and then the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, which marks the location where Jesus was both crucified and three days later resurrected. (laughs) But he, he admits that, you know, in describing the significance of these these sites, these structures, that he's not that deeply versed in Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. And I would I would have to agree because he has made some statements in this book, such as well, he he called it. It, it was listed in a category of um, fables or 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 stories. Oh, superstitions he calls them, and one of the quote-unquote superstitions, was Jesus' body floating away after three days to be with his dad. (laughs) So that tells you how little he really knows about Jesus' death and resurrection. He didn't float away after three days, and it wasn't to go be with his dad. That was the ascension when he returned back to the Father. Um, Jesus still had some more work to do. 
here on this planet. And he appeared to many, many, many people who witnessed the fact that, that he was alive. But but anyway, so yeah, I mean, admittedly, at least he admits it because, um, well, well one of the things that, that tells me he doesn't know what he's talking about either. So I mentioned the foundation stone that he just, that, that he had mentioned. And he says, this stone is totally rad. First off, it was supposedly where God created the world. And this stone is located by the temple mount. So, mm, nope. <laughs> anyway, it says, as if that wasn't enough, it's supposedly also where he created the very first man, Adam. And he goes on to say, in the Baha'i belief system, Adam was not the first actual human being, but rather the first recorded divine messenger, prophet, or manifestation of God. Here we go again, completely twisting God's word, making up stories. Cain and Abel had a picnic lunch on that rock, and I'm not making this up. The Ark of the Covenant apparently once rested on it. It was also the very stone where Abraham, the world's first monotheist, was about to sacrifice his son Isaac. Isaac in the Hebrew Bible, Ishmael in the Muslim tradition. <laughs> oh boy, huh? Before God jumped in and said, gotcha, just wanted to make sure you do anything I asked, sucker. Yeah, he, um, very irreverent. It's, it's very sad, but uh, none of that's true. None of these things all took place here at this rock. Okay, we, we know that for a fact. And no, it was not Ishmael, as much as the religion of Islam would love for it to be, so they can add some credibility or try to, <laughs> to their false religion. It's just not true. Check the infallible word of God and hear what God himself has to say about that. Anyway, he says, I mean, our rock doesn't really get more sacred than this particular rock. And then he says, on our trip, we didn't get to see the actual stone as the entrance to the Dome of the Rock was off limits due to political unrest in Israel. It's off limits because the religion of Islam has profaned it and taken it over. It's not theirs. It never was. It never will be. And they don't, they don't allow people to freely visit. And when they do allow the Jews to visit, it's not without much harassment. Hear my episode on what really goes on at the Temple Mount if you'd like to learn more about that. But anyway, he talks about the mosque, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. He says, to Muslims, this location is the third most holy spot in the world. It is the site of the Prophet Muhammad's mystical midnight journey where he traveled to Jerusalem on the back of the winged steed, Barak, and then ascended to the seven heavens, aided by the angel Gabriel, and met with all the previous prophets of the world's major religions, Adam, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, etc., and received instructions from Allah about prayer. <sighs> Talk about hijacking what really happened, right? But um, yeah, well, this, this so-called holy site, like, by the way, all the other mosques that they have found in Gaza now, which were really nothing but uh, weapons storage places for, for weapons, for missiles and guns and bombs. That's, that's how sacred and, and holy their mosques are. Of course, then when you think of their warped way of thinking, that the fact that they consider this war, this war to annihilate anyone who doesn't convert to Islam, a holy war, I, I guess you could, it would stand to reason that they're using their so-called holy sites to store weapons of destruction 
meant to kill people is justified that it's all <laughs> holy in the name of Allah. But he his point here is of all you know all the, the different religions that are just within Israel itself and the disagreements about who belongs to water, you know, what what belongs to who. All right, just like to take a break here and share an important message with you and after that I'll be right back. Mom, Dad, please help me. I'm hearing things at school. On the radio. I see it on the TV. Social media. In the books I read at school. And the books read to me at school. Are these things true? About who I am. About marriage. About gender. About race. It's all so confusing. I need to know what God has to say about it. Please, give me a strong foundation. One what's based in God's Word. Empower me. Equip me. To know truth from a lie. I can't do it without you, Mom, Dad. If you don't teach me, who will? Get to me first before someone else does. Visit loveandtruthbooks.com So he talks about being in the church where Jesus was supposedly crucified. And he says this particular church is cooperatively shared by multiple branches of Christianity. He says, remember, there are more than 45,000 denominations of what is often thought of as a three-headed church, Catholic, Protestant, and Eastern Orthodox. The Church of the Holy Sepulchre is administered by the Greek Orthodox Church, the Armenian Apostolic Church, the oldest in the world, and the Roman Catholic Church, as well as, though to a lesser degree, the Coptics, Ethiopians, and Syrian Catholics. There's even a literal schedule hanging on the wall about who gets to control or be in certain parts of the church at certain times. And he talks about one of the uh, robed priests marching out, another marching in, swinging chained incense around in their smoky thuribles as they are wont to do, chanting and marching as they came and went, seating and gaining authority over a small section of the real estate of the floor of the church. Suddenly I noticed something that truly struck me. They were swinging their chained metal censures around, smoke pouring out of the holes in a remarkably aggressive manner, almost toward the members of the other church as they passed them. Their loud chanting was a bit hostile as well. The negative energy in the most holy church of all Christianity was palpable. So I did what any God-fearing tech-savvy tourist would do. I pulled out my phone and did a deep Google dive right there under the sacred pillars and arches. And what I discovered was that serious fights break out between the various factions all the time. And so he says, here's something that Wikipedia said. On a hot summer day in 2002, a Coptic monk moved his chair from its agreed spot into the shade. This was interpreted as a hostile move by the Ethiopians, and 11 were hospitalized after the resulting fracas. In another incident in 2004, during Orthodox celebrations of the exaltation of the Holy Cross, a door to the Franciscan chapel was left open. This was taken as a sign of disrespect by the Orthodox, and a fistfight broke out. Some people were arrested, but no one was seriously injured. And on Palm Sunday in April 2008, a brawl broke out when a Greek monk was ejected from the building by a rival faction. Police were called to the scene, but were also attacked by the enraged brawlers. <laughs> on Sunday, November 9, 2008, a clash erupted between Armenian and Greek monks during celebrations for the Feast of the Cross. You know, I have to tell you something. 
I'm sorry, then maybe some of you aren't going to like what I say, but these monks and the um, the Roman Catholics in there, um, unfortunately, you know, you have you have sectors of you have false religions working under the label of Christianity in those places. Let's take the monks, monks, for example, okay? You know, that, that's not biblical, okay? It's not biblical. God does not call us to separate ourselves from the world and live that way. It's just the opposite. He calls us to go out into the world and make disciples of all nations, okay? He calls us to be out there preaching the gospel, living exemplary, holy, set-apart lives for others to see. That's what he calls us to do. It has nothing to do with God or Christianity, this, this nonsense of, of being a monk. It just doesn't at all. And then, you know, um, doing all these self-sacrificial acts, whether it's sleeping on a hard, cold floor, like somehow that's going to get you closer to God or remove any sin, um, things like that. No, that is not true Christianity. That's not what it's about. Okay. So I, I just find it interesting because these are not evangelical Christian religions that he is talking about here. Sorry. They're, they're religions. Okay. They're, they're man-made. They're not just true, simple Christ followers that follow the word of God as it's written. Okay. These are Religions that have, they've added and taken away really from the word of God. They have their own ideas, um, works-based ideas of what gets them to God. So yes, you're, you're, you're going to find a lot of that there. But he's right, you know, as he says, we live in a fractured world. He says a large portion of the population seems to live in accordance with rigid religious beliefs that they've inherited from ancestors, culture, and family. Sometimes these beliefs feel like a blind, inflexible adherence to a conservative series of ancient doctrines that have not been personally explored and that have little relevance in the modern world. When I see certain Christians denouncing vaccines and condemning gays to hell, <laughs> some Hindu nationalists promoting violence against women and girls, a group of Muslims praising the killing of innocent civilians as acts of holy heroism, or a community of Jews praising Elohim as they bulldoze Palestinian settlements. I frequently wish there were no religions remaining on our planet. It's because it's about a relationship with the true God. It's not about religion, first of all, Mr. Wilson. Most Christians um, have no problems with vaccines. First of all, if he's talking about COVID, it's not a vaccine, number one. Number two, it was completely untested and rushed through. As our bodies being temples of the Lord, why would people put something in them that they don't feel is safe? I'm not condemning those who did or those who didn't, but I'm saying people had a good reason to question it. And there's more and more evidence coming out now that shows just why people were concerned and rightly so. Condemning gays to hell. Well, actually, unrepentant sinners go to hell. And if you are living in a gay a homosexual lifestyle, and actively embracing it and are okay with it and living it out, you are an unrepentant sinner. 
It's not your gayness <laughs> that's going to send you to hell. It's your refusal to repent and to turn to God and live his way, honor him as Lord that's going to send you to hell. That's who God condemns to hell, unrepentant sinners. Look, Christians do not condemn gays or any unrepentant sinner to hell. God does. He clearly states it in his word. So Christians, out of love and concern for their fellow man, okay, Christians, they merely share what God has said in his word, okay? We, we share, we warn them about the impending uh, danger that unrepentant sinners face, the danger of spending an eternity in hell. Okay, so I just thought I'd clear up uh, that little uh, misunderstanding in his book <laughs> that Christians aren't condemning gays to hell, but, but God is if they don't turn from their sin. So anyway, he goes on to say, this atheist or non-religious 15% of the world's population, which is almost 1 billion people, adamantly believe that humanity, finally freed from its religious dogmas, will embrace the science, common sense, agreed upon human rights, and collective ethics that will ultimately lead to the flourishing of humanity as a species. But the thing is, they have freed themselves from the quote-unquote dogmas, okay, religious dogmas. They don't acknowledge it. But the thing is, they don't acknowledge science. They don't acknowledge the fact that um, science says you are, a, when you're a man, when, when you are born with male anatomy, you cannot ever be a woman. And when you have your woman parts, you cannot be a man. So, so what do they do when they can't um, negate the science, the facts? They mess around with uh, definitions. And so now when you're born and your gender is named, whether you're a male or female, it's not called gender anymore because gender, you know, isn't your what they now call sex assigned at birth. According to the science deniers, gender is fluid. So there goes that theory that without the religious dogmas, people will embrace science because that's proof right there. Just one proof that they do not, in fact, embrace science if it doesn't fit their their narrative. Okay, so yeah. Human rights for ungodly people are to live how they want, even if it's against what God commands, or even if it's what he calls an abomination or perverse, that that's their human right to do so. Well, I guess it is your right to do so, but it's also, you know, if you'd like to as an unrepentant sinner be, sinner be condemned to hell, that's fine. But it's also people's human right to not agree with you on it, <laughs> okay? Um, we're seeing how humanity has flourished as they have pulled away from God. They've removed God from government, from schools, from families, from homes. Are you kidding me? We have people now that are rooting for terrorists. They're rooting for the beheading of babies, the burning of babies in ovens, the raping of women. You know, kidnapping of people from their homes and their land, butchering, okay? This world is so full of hate, and it's those that have pulled away from the religious dogmas, as he calls them. And you know, it's funny, he, he said, if I backtrack a little bit, he said these beliefs sometimes, they feel like a blind, inflexible adherence to a conservative series of ancient doctrines that have not been personally explored, that have little relevance in the modern world. 
Mr. Wilson, you speak in ignorance. I mean ignorance. This has been studied for thousands of years, our dogmas. We compare scripture with scripture. We, we know what the results are of living out those ancient doctrines. We know what they bring us, freedom, peace, joy, love, unity. That's what they bring. Oh, they've been explored, trust me, more so than anything else has ever been explored. And they have little relevance. (laughs) That's a hoot. Um, Because God is unchanging. His morals that he laid out for us are are boundaries, moral boundaries, um, you know, whether they be sexual boundaries or whatever. That has not changed. It applied then and it applies now, plain and simple. His word, which is why the Bible is still, you know, as much as people want to destroy it, all its prophetic utterances, all the prophecies that have come true, everything fulfilled in its completeness, still being fulfilled right before our eyes. Oh, it's, it's relevant. It's relevant because man is still a sinner. Man is still a degenerate. Man is still separated from God, a sinner from birth. Man still needs Jesus Christ. Man still needs to repent. And throw himself at the cross at Jesus Christ. Man still needs to honor and obey God. Acknowledge him. That hasn't changed. We're seeing, you know, all the, all the violence, all the hate, you know. Um, human rights, collective ethics, left in the hands of unrepentant sinners. It's a disaster. And we have the disaster unfolding before us right now. World War Three looming. Because people didn't stick to those religious dogmas. They didn't explore them. They didn't embrace them. And they toss it aside as though it doesn't apply now. So then he asks, because he's laying a foundation here, is religion even worth it? He says, if you're tempted to abandon religion entirely, it's worth first asking, well, what religion is currently in place in contemporary America and by proxy in the majority of the Western world? What religion is actually working How do we define religion in today's society? And what do people truly worship? What is the religion we want to disband or jettison? Well, I can answer what people worship right now are themselves and Satan. Because if you're not of God, you're of the devil. If your father isn't God, your father is the devil. Okay. Um, New age spirituality. That's the religion. You know, the religion of self. Or the religion of climate change, um, <laughs> you know, the religion of sexual perversion. That's what people are worshiping today. But he does talk about the fastest growing religion. And he says its followers are called the nuns, so-called because on surveys, when asked about religious affiliation, they check none or none of the above. Yes, as I said, <laughs> look around what's going on in the world. Are you surprised? Nuns are agnostics and atheists, yes, but by far the majority are self-titled spiritual but not religious. This is a category ascribed to by well over a third of millennials and far more Gen Zers. 60% of nuns grew up in a religious family, usually Protestant, he says. A third of nuns meditate, and again, most describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. 
and the ranks are growing at an outrageous rate. But church membership has declined from 70% in the mid-90s to about 45% in 2022. And, you know, the agnostic or the spiritual but not religious has swelled by 60%. He says, why are so many young Americans and Europeans identifying as none of the above when it comes to religion? Well, first of all, it was predicted in our Bible that it would because we are in the end times. Um, We have several reasons why the church did not stick to those ancient doctrines that he says have little relevance in the world. The church became ashamed of the gospel. The church tried to please the world. And so you got many people that just weren't getting the true word of God. Um, Many of these people were never truly Christians. The church has unfortunately bred a lot of false converts because of the watered down, feel good gospel, easy believism, prosperity gospel. That's in there too. That's why people haven't taught um, their children at home or taken them to church. Parents have failed the children. The church has failed. That's why. It's not because there's something wrong with Christianity or Jesus or those ancient doctrines, God's word. That's not the problem. It's those that were supposed to teach it, share it with the world. They became world pleasers or or people pleasers. It says here, um, there are countless teachings that many 20-somethings vehemently disagree with in contemporary organized religion. Many of them have to do with sexuality. Mm -hmm, They sure do. Why? Because um, feeling good, pleasures come first. Okay. Laws and moral teachings around homosexuality, abortion rights, premarital sexual relations, and traditional gender roles, laws that are frequently exhorted in more long-established church-sanctioned lifestyles. That's what turned people off, apparently. Living within God's sexual boundaries that he set. Setting aside your uh, sexual urges and desires for holiness. Um looking at your, your body as sacred, made in the image of God. That's all been set aside so people can fulfill their lusts. That's exactly what it is. Abortion, because of convenience. That's why. Gender, traditional gender roles, those are God's tra- gender roles, okay? He knew what he was doing from day one when he made male and female only, permanent male, female for each of us. It's a permanent thing. He, he knew what he was doing. Um, but again, when you take God away and you fail to recognize the true living God, this is what you get. Um, Mr. Wilson, religions like yours, the Baha'i faith does the same thing. It causes all of this. You take truth and you throw it away for something that soothes your itching ears. Um, you can call it judgmentalism or hypocrisy Okay, I know people say this a lot, but it's true. Don't look to me, look to Jesus. We fail, we're human. As Christians, we still have temptations and sometimes we sin. We are not completely sanctified yet. We are not perfect, but that doesn't mean that God isn't. We may fail people, that doesn't mean that God does. Stop using imperfect Christians as an excuse to run from the one true living God who's going to hold you accountable. Okay? Stop. 
People don't want God's holiness and justice. That's what it is. If you call sin a sin, you're judging me. Again, that's a cop-out. It's a cop-out. But you know, right now, the sheep from the goats are being separated. As, as time creeps on and we get closer to the return of Jesus Christ and the end of history as we know it, God is separating the sheep from the goats. We're finding out who is who within the church. This thing with Israel. <laughs> and we're finding out where people stand. And we're finding anti-Semitism right within the church. So, yes, uh, organized religion or Christianity um, being included in what he refers to as organized religion. I say it's really relationship more than it is religion, but Christianity is not perfect. Why? Because Christians are not perfect. The one they follow is perfect. See, the difference when a Christian sins, a true Christian, we know we do. We know we have because the Holy Spirit within us convicts us. We're grieved over our sin. And we go to God in repentance with the intention of not doing it again, asking him for his help to not do it again. We don't want to do it again. But other people just sin and say, oh, well, that's me. Oh, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, what can I say? Mm, deal with it. It's just how I am. Um, there, there's no grief on their part. They're not holding themselves accountable to a higher power, the higher power, the perfect higher power. Okay. They don't want to do that. Okay. How about I share an irony with you here? He talks about new age spirituality, which he calls narcissistic, and he is right. Yep. He talks about the uh, woo-woo yoga community in L.A. He says, it increasingly feels like the purpose of modern spirituality is simply to make me feel better internally. It's a form of self-care, self-help, soothing, and solace. But toward what end? This way of thinking can easily lead to a kind of, now listen to this, get this, okay? Because this is what I've been saying as I've been refuting this book with all these episodes. He says, this way of thinking can easily lead to a kind of smorgasbord spirituality where one picks and chooses what is best for oneself from a buffet of self-help healing options. Picking and choosing what works for me in the same way that one shops for snacks at Trader Joe's. Huh. <laughs> That's exactly what the author of this book is doing with God. He's picking and choosing what's going to work for him, what he's most comfortable with. He has a smorgasbord spirituality. Okay. Here's a good point he has. He says, if we look at our spiritual practice in the same way we look at everything else we're doing in our daily lives, as in what's in it for me, then we are neglecting our human family and not addressing the suffering and sadness of those around us. Amen. This is not holy, sacred, or divine. He's right. It's ultimately wrapped in the same selfishness that pervades contemporary culture. But you know, Mr. Wilson, the only way around it is to surrender oneself to Jesus Christ, plain and simple. And that is the heart of Christianity. It's other-focused. And so while he shows the pitfalls of religion, he's also trying to get the reader to perhaps not just throw the baby out with the bathwater, to still embrace religion. 
He says the core of the word religion originated from the Latin verb ligar and was devised as follows, religio or religati, religati, sorry, I don't pronounce these words, to fasten or bind together. That religion, while certainly a cause of disunity, violence, and judgmentalism had at other times in human history been a force for progress, unity, and yes, even enlightenment. Religion, really? A positive movement for progress and enlightenment? Impossible, you might say, and that's certainly what our epic trip to Israel made me feel at times. When our tour was finished, he said, I looked around one last time at the Temple Mount, and my heart was saddened. As I gazed over the gorgeous ancient city of Jerusalem, I could feel the disunity and mistrust between faiths, a powder keg of simmering antagonism that could lead to world war. Mm, Boy, you got that one right. And that's exactly what it's doing. But it's false religion that is doing this. And you, Mr. Wilson, belong to a false religion. But it says right here at the crux of three of the holiest sites in the world. They're in the most revered place on the planet as we gave our hugs and goodbyes to our his uh, their tour guide, Bruce. I was struck by the fact that sometimes peace and unity feels downright impossible, especially here in the Muddle East, as he calls it. He said, but as I considered my trip over the following months, I came to believe that maybe there's another way. Perhaps the path to seeing the world's religions as a potential source of progress is to explore the universal truths that unite them. Common threads that could show everyone everywhere that these faiths are not at their core as disparate and divisive as they appear. Perhaps they are all just different paths to one cosmic truth. Ooh, that's a good idea. Let's dig into that next. Okay, so we're going to end things here. This was, I only got through chapters five and six, so I will continue next week with chapter seven. But as you can see in chapters five and six, the author basically was laying the foundation for, um, <laughs> let's start a new religion. But um, what he was trying to do is to show that um, with all the different religions of the world, there is conflict, there is divide, as there should be. So he's going to next week share the foundations of um, these various religions and try to find common denominators, which this is what the author does. Pick and choose the ones that seem good, sound good, maybe feel good, and implement those into uh, some other form of religion. So we'll get into that next week. Hopefully you have enjoyed this and you've learned a lot about this uh, interesting book here by Rain Wilson. So please come back next week and join me for chapter seven of Refuting the Book Soul Boom, Why We Need a Spiritual Revolution by Rain Wilson. And in the meantime, be that light in the darkness, be that candle. Whenever you see untruth, whenever you see something that's going against God that's going against God's word. Learn about it. Speak out about it. Okay. Because you know, there are people that will be affected by this and not in a good way either. So we always need to be on guard for all these things, right? Contending for the faith here, all these things that seek to dishonor God, that seek to turn truth into a lie. And boy, we see a lot of that these days, don't we? So the song for the day, I thought the song 
Ancient Words would be a great song because the author had mentioned in the book that these beliefs that we get from our ancestors, which these are beliefs that we get directly from the Word of God, really, um, he said they feel like a blind, inflexible adherence to a conservative series of ancient doctrines that have not been personally explored and that have little relevance in the modern world. Well, these ancient doctrines from God's word are, as we know, relevant. They're as relevant today as they were when they were written. So yes, it's Ancient Words, and it's by Michael W. Smith. You can find the song on YouTube, and I will include the link in the podcast show notes on my website, One Little Candle Podcast. Speaking of my website, Please check it out if you haven't visited yet, onelittlecandlepodcast.com. There you can listen to any episode of One Little Candle. You can check out my blog and other little goodies that I have, or please even subscribe for an occasional newsletter or freebie. You can also contact me if you'd like at candlestogether at gmail.com or follow me on Instagram as One Little Candle Podcast. Okay. That is it for today. I will be back next week with chapter seven of Soul Boom, titled The Fabulous Foundations of Faith. But until then, stand strong, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Don't let your light dim. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. All right, until next time, you take care and God bless. God bless.